Good morning. Yes, about 40 years ago, I was invited by Philip to preach in Holy Ghost Hall. <laughs> and I thought, what a very appropriate name for a ministry. And then I found out it was a Catholic church building, and I thought the ironies just go on and on and on. Carolyn, wonderful to see you. The name of our nonprofit ministry is Becoming What God Intended Ministries. Our mission is rather straightforward. It involves the Trinity. Ignite, ignite Christian leaders worldwide to inspire participation in the life of the Trinity by breaking down barriers that prohibit a growing, healthy relationship with God the Father. That is our mission statement. We do it through discipleship and evangelism, a rather unique form of evangelism. In the providence of God, something that I never, absolutely never imagined, never thought about, we have ended up doing training, mental health training, in the universities of Beijing for the 60 mental health centers in Beijing, and also doing mental health training for the psychology teachers of Beijing. There are 60 schools, 60 mental health centers, and we bring over Christian therapists, Christian psychologists who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in the Bible, who are committed to biblical transformation, and last of all, they're nice. Nice is always a good byproduct of the Holy Spirit. And of all things, we've been officially invited by the Beijing Communist Committee for Propaganda and Information to do that. So you are looking at a man who is approved by the Communist Party of China. <laughs> which is beyond my imagining how all of that has happened. They know the teams we bring over are believers. We've had the opportunity to lead several of the psychology professors and counselors to Christ. It's a totally unique ministry. It's a springboard for evangelism. That's the last class I taught in Beijing. But also we do discipleship training. And in March of 2011, March of 2013, we did discipleship training. And about eight nuns, Chinese Catholic nuns, joined us, again in the providence of God. The head of the convent that these nuns attend invited me in March of 2013 to come to the convent with our team and for three days, from nine in the morning to nine at night, we taught about the Trinity, and they were just a wonderful group to teach. We trained them in a 22-week discipleship pattern, and 12 of those nuns actually at the convent went through the discipleship process that we trained a number of them in. Utterly, utterly remarkable. Now, I didn't go anywhere in that, I wouldn't dare. So it's a staged photograph 
the lady in the sweater is the head of the convent. The lady next to her is her assistant. And just delightful gals there in the city of Daming. We took a bullet train from Beijing to Daming. And for 200 miles, all we could see is smog. Couldn't see beyond 1,000 feet. Just pure smog. We live in a world where people do not know who they are. We live in a modern world, whether it's North America, South America, Europe, or Southeast Asia, people do not know who they are. If you do not know who you are, you will become someone you don't want to be. If you do not know who you are, you will become someone you don't want to be. In North America, South America, Europe, Southeast Asia, modern culture does not appreciate the difference between the genders. Modern culture does not know how the genders are supposed to relate. In fact, modern culture implies and sometimes says there is no difference between the genders, which on the face of it is an absolutely ridiculous statement. In the Bible, in biblical Christianity, we have an incredible strategic advantage over this world and we have an incredible opportunity to offer a helping hand to the people of this world because we can tell them who they are. We can tell them what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, what it means to be a married person. The world does not have the answers for such things. And yet in the Bible and in the church of Jesus Christ, the answers are there as a Christian. Every day you should have a profound sense of pride that our God stooped down to tell us who we are and tell us we are worth dying for. And so for this coming week, we'll be talking about what it means to be human, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, what it means to be the genders in relationship, what is a marriage, what is miscommunication, what is healthy communication. And this morning we'll be talking about what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be male and female. To start this off, when I was about four years of, four years of age, I ran into a great mystery. The mystery was this. In the kindergarten I attended, they had boxes of 36 crayons and 50 crayons, big boxes of Crayola crayons. And I was troubled. It probably says something about my personality. I was troubled. I thought, I have no interest in 60 crayons. Who are these crayons made for? Who? It's not me. I once took, it's a distinct memory, I took a box of those 60 crayons, I pulled out the color white, 
I took a white sheet of paper and I colored it white and I thought, what is the point of that? Five years ago, I discovered the answer to the mystery. Young girls use 10 or more crayons per picture. And they draw subjects. Young boys use at most six crayons. The mystery is solved. Those crayon boxes were made for females. <laughs> All I needed was black and red and blue and green. Not, a, not one more. And boys grew, drew action. There is a God-given difference between the genders and it just pops up everywhere. So we're going to look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 this morning and this evening. We'll be talking about gender differences this morning, miscommunication patterns in the fall of this evening, and what is healthy communication. If you're single, if you're a teenager, or if you're a married couple, you absolutely should be here. You owe it to your own humanity to be here. In Genesis, we are told that God has created the man and the woman, and the two shall become one flesh. In Genesis chapter 1, we are told that a stage was created on day one, light was called forth by God. On day two, the sky appeared when the waters were separated from the waters below and the waters above. On day three, the earth, the land mass, was called forth. First three days, a stage prepared. Then the second day, an earth to be filled. The sun, moon, and stars were placed in the heavens sort of like a divine Rolex to tell us the days of the month, the time to worship, the length of the year. Then on day five, birds and fish filled this earth. And then on day six, animals and humanity appeared. The male and the female appeared. And humanity was created to be a couple that would govern the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image. How we appear. Your physical appearance is patterned after how God chose to appear to spirit beings and then to human beings. You are a physical replica, a physical analogy of the divine. You are made in the image of God. There, just like a member of the Trinity, there will only be one of you in the existence of this universe. But also like a member of the Trinity, you share a nature similar to God and you share a nature that is the same as every other human being. Let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, starting out with the most difficult to the more easy. 
over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. And God created Adam, the man, referring to the male, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And in the verse, there is an emphasis on the male, which will be explained in chapter 2. Then the woman is introduced at the end of the verse. Male and female, he created them in order to reign. Both the man and the woman are intended to govern this earth. The triangle represents the Trinity. The male and the female have had the characteristics of the Trinity poured into them. In the Trinity, there are masculine characteristics and there are feminine characteristics. In the Bible, when God the Father is referred to or God the Son is referred to, sometimes masculine characteristics are attributed to them. Sometimes feminine characteristics are attributed to them. Within the Trinity, there's a primary relationship between the Father and the Son, a twosome. Then there is a third person that brings that relationship into fruition in our lives. Those persons became the basis of our creation as human beings. Their characteristics were poured into us. An example of feminine characteristics in the book of Isaiah, God is speaking and he says, a nursing mother may forget the baby at her bosom. Those women may forget, but I will not forget you. Tremendous statement. And none of us, I suspect, are bothered by the fact that God compares himself to a nursing mother. But if I looked at David Howard and said to David Howard, David, you look like a nursing mother to me. He looks strangely uncomfortable. But we can say that about God the Father. And none of us are uncomfortable because he is more nurturing and more compassion, passionate than the most nurturing and compassionate of women. Or Jesus Christ, as he was entering into Jerusalem, said, just like a mother hen, I would have gathered you. You say to a man, you're like a mother hen, and he'll probably be offended. You say that of Jesus Christ, and our hearts melt with the thought that he wants to gather us. Masculine and feminine characteristics why do you exist? Why do you breathe? Why do you occupy space? We should be able to say to a non-Christian, the reason I exist, and we should be able to say it to ourselves, the reason I exist is because I have been created to participate in the life of God. As a human being, I am made in the image of God. As a human being, I am valuable to God because he gave his own son for me, which proves my value to him and his love for me. But even more so, when I've been regenerated, born again, 
I've been given the ability to participate in the life of the Trinity, in the life of God. I have been made to know God the Trinity. That is my purpose. If I have a lesser purpose than that, I have missed the reason. I am breathing. We have been made to reflect what God is like and to participate in the life of God. The Father and Son, in Genesis chapter 1, are in a loving relationship, and one says to another, let us make humanity. The Father-Son relationship is the primary relationship of the Trinity. They speak, and a man and a woman appear. The woman reflecting the feminine characteristics of the divine, the man reflecting the masculine characteristics of divine. Each person is unique unto themselves. There'll never be another Adam, there'll never be another Eve, and there'll never be another you. You're it for the universe. And you are loved. They appear, and they are different. Then at the end of the chapter, God pronounces what he has made very good. But now the question is, what did he make? What is the difference between the female and the male? How are they supposed to relate? Who are they to each other? And in Genesis chapter 2, we have a pretty clear statement. Actually, a very clear statement of gender differences. And ladies, in chapter 2, if you have Genesis 2 open, I would write at the top of Genesis 2 the chapter of the woman. Because Genesis 2 has more verses about the woman than it does have, a, have about the man. Genesis chapter 1 is the chapter of the man. Genesis chapter 2 is the chapter of the woman. And it's a critically important chapter for women and men to understand. And the basis of a solid male-female relationship, married or unmarried or not, is to understand and to positively appreciate these differences. Now, I was in Portland, Oregon, giving this talk. I have a luxury that Pastor Howard doesn't have. He has to prepare a sermon for every Sunday. Guys like me can take the same sermon and preach it about a thousand times to fresh folks. And I was in Portland, Oregon, giving this talk, and at the end of the talk, the associate pastor of the church walked up and he said, you were talking about gender differences. And he flips out an, uh, sort of like an iPhone, and the picture on the iPhone is that. I looked at it and I thought, that's it. That is the difference between men and women. The guys have an on-off switch. It's called going to sleep at night and waking up in the morning is the on position. <laughs> then there is the complexity of the woman. And that complexity is implied, implied in Genesis chapter 2. So let's see how we're different as genders. In the garden, in Genesis chapter 2, God supplied a garden for Adam and Eve, 
It was a garden that was watered by four massive rivers, almost an infinite supply of water. And it had great potential mineral wealth. Bdellium, gold, and silver were there. Because God intended that as man used its mind, as humanity used its mind, that they would become metallurgists, scientists. All the basics were there to create a marvelous and godly civilization wherein humanity would govern the earth in this garden. Carol and I, for our 25th anniversary, nope, what did she say? 30th anniversary, 30th. Been married 43 years, I hope. Yes. <laughs> that one I got right. 30th anniversary, we went to Israel, and we went to Italy, and we went to Rome in Italy, and we went to the Vatican, and we went to the Sistine Chapel, where Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the chapel the story of creation and fall in the history of the Old Testament and the New. And you would have to look up at the ceiling. And they had just cleaned the ceiling so that the colors were just outrageously powerful, beautiful. And we looked up at the ceiling, and there was the scene. And everyone notices Adam because he's quite alone. Do you see that? We've seen this picture a million times, but he's quite alone. And notice there is God, and there's a crowd around God, the creator God. But Adam's quite alone. And hardly to be noticed is God has his left arm around a blonde, a woman. And she's hardly not even noticed. But she's there, and that blonde is the one who is driven out of the garden with Adam. And no, notice how Michelangelo painted this. He painted the man alone like he's just coming to consciousness. He paints the woman with his arm around the woman because Michelangelo understood Genesis chapter 2. He understood the distinction that's implied in Genesis chapter 2 between the man and the woman. And if you look carefully at the eyes of the woman, I think she looks a bit nervous because the woman's saying to herself, what on earth is that? And God needs to comfort her. <laughs> there was this very hearty female amen over on that side. <laughs> so the first question is, what does it mean to be male? What does being male mean? Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 20 describe that. And we need to recognize that Adam was formed when Eve was not there. <clears throat> and with Adam, when he was formed and when he was vivified, when he came to life, was given a series of purposes to fulfill. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed man of the dust from the ground. 
The word for formed is yatsar, and it means to form like a potter forms a pot of clay. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. So I have this picture in my mind of God forming clay, and he's kneeling over on the clay. When God called forth the horse, when he called forth the fish, when he called forth the eagle, he just spoke the word and they came. They suddenly came into existence and they flew. But with the man, he bends over. He forms out of clay the man. And then he bends over further. He's kneeling and he breathes right into the man's nostrils. You cannot get more closer than that. He breathes into the man's nostrils breath of life. And the man becomes a living soul. He becomes an appetite. He becomes emotions. He becomes alive. A human being, male or female, is a divine production. The greatest work of art is not found in museums. The greatest work of art, physical work of art in the universe, it is you. It is you. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted the garden towards the east in Eden. And there he placed the man, Adam, whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the tree of the experience of benefit and wretchedness, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. And then he told the man, but from the tree of the knowledge, from the tree of the experience of good benefit and wretchedness, absolutely never eat because in the day you eat of it you will surely be dead as a doornail in the day you eat from it but what do you notice about the story Adam is described as being very good at the end of chapter 1 and then we ask the question what is he very good at the answer is given in chapter 2. Cultivate and keep. He is given a grocery list of activities to do. He is given a set of purposes to fulfill. And he is told one thing not to do, but he has an entire world to do a lot of things with. And if you were to say, what is the essence of this man who was created and what is the essence of being male, it's being created to fulfill purposes greater than yourself. A man without a great purpose is a man with a lot of problems. A man with a significant purpose is a man whose energies will be pulled into centrality within him to a goal that will better himself and better others. A man is a purposer. Now as we go along, 
we will assume there are certain things that irritate women about men, and there are certain things that irritate men about women. But let me say this quite plainly. Those things that you find most irritating about the opposite gender were placed there by God. It is the fall in sin that makes them irritations. It is God who made them strengths. But we have to understand the strengths that have been placed within us. The purposer, an acceptor of purposes greater than himself. But, the statement is made, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. In the chapter, a transition is made to explain the existence of Eve. And in chapter 2, verse 18, the woman is introduced. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good or beneficial for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God looks at the man. Remember in that ceiling painting, the man's alone. God looks at the man and says, it is not good. It's not beneficial for the man to be alone. In North America, South America, Europe, and in Southeast Asia, the statistics are all the same. On the average, married men will die four years before, on the average, before their wife. On the average, single men will die four years on the average before a married man will die. So if you're a single guy, on the average, you'll die eight years before a married woman would die. They have spent tens of millions of dollars trying to figure out why guys drop like flies before women. And after all of that research, they've concluded that there's one factor that seems to make men live longer. It's called marriage. A woman. I have gone to Kaiser more times than I like. And most of the time I've resented it because even though I was falling apart from the scenes, at the seams, I was convinced, who needs a doctor? Just tough it out. Then my wife would push me in that direction. I would go to the doctor. I would find out I was sick, which came to me as a surprise. I just thought I was uncomfortable. The doctor just told me I was sick, which is what my wife had been telling me. And literally, it saved my life one time. And I'm grateful. But if you're married, long-term relationship, and you're male, it's a good thing. It's not beneficial for a man to be alone. And I will make him a helper suitable for him. That's the way the New American Standard Version says it. A helper. This is an important word, the word helper. It's pronounced achzer. All of you pronounce it, achzer. Zer. You're a bit more enthusiastic in the hymn singing. Ach, Zer. 
still rather feeble. This is an important word. Ach, zer. Ach, zer. It's Hebrew for helper. Now, the translation of helper is weak. It's an under-translation, and here's why. The word akzer appears about 20 times as a noun in the Hebrew Old Testament. 16 times it's used of God himself. It is actually a divine title. In the book of Psalms, it says, God, Yahweh, is our akzer and shield. He is our helper and shield. It is a term which is used of deity, of God. It's used twice of Eve. It's used once of God providing a divine helper. And secondly, it's used of God looking for a helper to rescue mankind. It is a noble term. It should be translated a helper like God. Because that's how the Hebrew, native Hebrew speaker would have felt the word. When it's your native tongue, you don't hear words, you feel words. And they would have felt the word a helper like God. Not an assistant, not a lieutenant, not a sergeant, not a private, but a divine helper. Ladies, isn't that magnificent? It is an incredible compliment. That is why it's the chapter of the woman. Then the verse goes on to say, an achzer, a divine helper, who is his equal, who is suitable for him. The critical thing in Scripture is not the inequality of the gender, genders, but understanding the difference between the genders. The genders are profoundly, profoundly different. What does being female mean? The essence of it is the oxair to address the issue of male loneliness not to address the issue of her own loneliness, but to address the issue of male loneliness. A helper, an oxair, a relational expert to address aloneness because she's very good, exceedingly good at this. A consultant, a consultant is an equal. And lastly, an art form. Why an art form? Because verse 22 and verse 23. And the Lord God fashioned, and the word fashioned is not yatsar, which is used of the man, the making of a clay pot. It is banah. Banah is a term which is used for the creation of temples, palaces, decorated columns, painted walls, and the building of a family. It always involves complexity and beauty, significance and greatness. It is a marvelous term. It is a term which is used of artistry and of the family. And the Lord God fashioned, banah, the into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man to show that they were related by nature and brought her to the man. 
And the man said, and he exploded forth with Hebrew poetry, not country western music, but Hebrew poetry. I teach Hebrew poetry. And he's begun by saying, this now is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he comes out with a poem. It is really striking what this chapter says about the woman. In, ch in chapter 2, the man has the need, not the woman. The woman is given a divine title. I had to create the title of purposer for the man because there is no divine title given for the man in chapter 2, but there is for the woman. The woman is the art form. Not only is she an art form, but she can create art. The woman evokes poetry. And so that is God's intention, that the man taking his strengths as he's enabled and ennobled by the woman, and the woman taking her strengths as she is enabled and ennobled by the man to be a glorious pair. And if you are single as a woman or a man, to bring who you are and what God has woven into you for the betterment of the women and the men around you. You don't have to be married to be human. And that's why I would really encourage the single folks to come to this seminar. But let's talk some about gender differences. We have given a picture of gender differences from Genesis 2. Now let's see how it works out in reality. Little boys and girls, 1.5 years old. There's no gender consciousness, but boys preferred trucks over dolls and vice versa for girls. Same results for nine-year-old children. In a wonderful book, which I, I believe every Christian educator should read, Why Gender Matters, a medical doctor and a Ph.D., researcher writes about differences between the genders and why they matter. Boys and girls play differently. Our two grandchildren are in our home. When one was three and one was five, I was walking down the hall. When I walked into the living room, the three-year-old went and shot me. Then the five-year-old took his imaginary gun and shot me. They missed me. I pulled out my two pistols. They fell dead for a half of a second. Their mother and my wife were in the room. They didn't waste bullets on them. It's not that they weren't worth shooting. It's just that the genders recognized who was in that game and who was outside of that game. The genders play differently. They learn differently. They fight differently. I have a friend who used to be a referee for basketball, college basketball, male basketball teams, female basketball teams. 
And I asked him, I, I said, well, what's the difference between male basketball players and female basketball players? And this is what he said. He said, when men are playing basketball and they get angry with each other, you know that a fight is coming. It usually takes about a half an hour, and then one of the men will get angry and punch another man on the basketball court. But you can see it coming. But he said, with women, you never see it coming. <laughs> the woman will suddenly throw her arm out, smash another lady in the face, pull her arm back and smile. <laughs> the guys never smile. That's called a gender difference. It's there. It's woven into the character. They hear differently. I was talking to an audiologist who said hundreds of men have been sent in by their wives for hearing tests. <laughs> and she said, in my whole history of being an audiologist for 20 or 30 years, she's a female audiologist, she said, not one of those men needed a hearing aid. <laughs> and then she said, and I read, that the female ear is designed to hear the human voice and the male ear is not. It's ranged differently. The genders actually hear differently. They see differently. They process emotions differently. The female processes emo emotions in the front of the brain. They think and they feel. Guys don't think and feel at the same time. That's too tricky. <laughs> they process emotions, males in the amygdala, women in the cerebral cortex, the thinking part of the mind. Second grade girls, according to this one researcher, were more like 25-year-old women than they were like second-grade boys. <laughs> when I pick up my grandson at grammar school, he's in first grade, I don't have to distinguish the genders between by how they look. You just watch them. The boys are running, shooting, wrestling, and tackling, and the little girls are talking. They're relating, and the boys are doing. Facial recognition. When female babies are born, they are utterly preoccupied with faces. When male babies are born, anything that moves, they look at. They're preoccupied with activity. Facial recognition is biological, both in males and females. But here's the fascinating part. The male eye is designed to notice activity. It's designed to notice activity. The rods and cones ratio is different in the male eye. In the female eye, the rods and cones ratio is different in the female from the male, and the female eye is designed to notice texture and color. That is why whenever I'm going to speak somewhere, before I go out the door, I walk by my wife, Carol, and if she laughs, I change my outfit. 
let me give you a test. If you're here as a couple, if you're here as a couple, here's a little test on facial recognition. And keep score. I'm only going to show you four facial expressions. And you figure out, guess what this facial expression is communicating. And I suspect if you're a couple, the female will do better than the male. Is this woman being decisive, amused, aghast, or bored? Decisive. Is this person being doubtful, affectionate, aghast, or playful? <laughs> Is this woman aghast, alarmed, fantasizing, or impatient? Fantasizing. If I saw a woman with an expression like that in a room, I'd run. Is this man being dominant, friendly, guilty, or horrified? Well, a woman said horrified. That's, a <laughs> That's the expression of a friendly male. <laughs> Better show it again. That's a friendly man, ladies. <laughs> if he looks confused, he's not. He's friendly. Here's a chart that I just love. I created it out of the book, Why Gender Matters. And it describes the differences between the genders. And it says that girls have two or three close friends. Boys have two to 12. Now, for boys, they don't know half the names of those friends, but they've got them. The focus in relationships with girls are each other. Notice again how it reflects this relational aspect, each other. The focus for boys is the activity they're in. Games for girls, these are generalities. There are plenty of Stanford women basketball players who are very serious about their games. But games for girls are an excuse to meet. For boys, it's life and death. It is central to existence. Conversation, I love this one. For girls, is central. <laughs> for males, it's unnecessary. My wife is endlessly impressed with the fact when she asks me, what am I thinking? And I say, nothing. <laughs> she can hardly believe it. And I assure her, I can think nothing and say nothing for days on end. <laughs> and I am a male extrovert. <laughs> Conversation, hierarchy, pecking order, who's in charge for women hierarchy is destructive. For males, it's an utter necessity. If a group of guys walk into a room, the first question in their mind, it's not even on, on the conscious level. It absolutely is not on the conscious level. But a group of guys, no women in the room, they walk in, they sit down, the first question on an intuitive, instinctive level is, who's in charge? 
It's absolutely the first question. And then if they figure out nobody's in charge, nearly every male in the room will go, then I am. <laughs> and then about an hour later, people come in to start pulling out the bodies because they become dangerous without a clear hierarchy. They are designed by God to be competitive and driven. But in noble causes, with the sympathies of Christ. Then the last one, which always tickles me, is self-revelation or the sharing of secrets. According to this book, and I could hardly believe it when I read it, I, I felt embarrassed for the female race. It said that to be a true friend with another female, you must share secrets. Males avoid that. If I came to Pastor Howard and I said, Pastor Howard, I must share with you my deepest, darkest secret. I want to share with you the depths of my heart. He would break out in a cold sweat and wish I would disappear. Because hey, I have worked a long time to have secrets and to keep them. They're my property. They're none of your business. That's the male's, male attitude. Female attitude is, let me share a secret, and we're buds. A male, you share me a deep, dark secret, you're a fool. <laughs> That's why, but what do they call those groups? Accountability groups for males are, are, are strange things. Then sexuality. Women's sexuality seems closely linked to a close relationship. Anne Paplau, a PhD psychologist, wrote this. For women, an important goal for pleasurable sex is a committed relationship. That is less true for men. Only a woman could write it that way. If a man psychologist wrote it, he would write it, this is absolutely true for men. Or, no, this is absolutely not true for men. Yeah, this is absolutely not true for men. Why? Because in the male, sexuality is driven by testosterone. In a female, sexuality is driven by a thing called oxytocin. Oxytocin is a bonding relational chemical. It's that feeling you get. It's the chemical that gives you the feeling of being relationally close. That's what drives female sexuality. Testosterone. A possessive, aggressive desire is what testosterone is. The genders are wired different even when it comes to sexuality. And so, I will wrap up here. If you're single and you want to come this evening and you'd like to be in a relationship, here's a proposal I would suggest you come up with. There are a lot of single women who desperately want to get married. And let me give you some background for the proposal I want you to use in order to have a partner for tonight. 
File away these facts. A married man dies on the average four years sooner than the woman he's married to. A single man dies four years sooner than a married man. Then in the history of the world, there were two great studies done a decade apart on who are the happiest people on the planet. Hundreds of thousands of people were interviewed, and on the average, they found this. Among married men, married women, single men, single women, guess who on the average are the happiest people on the planet on the average? Look at my smile. <laughs> married men. Who are? the second most happy people on the planet, on the average, after married men. <laughs> the youth pastor said, single women. He is correct. <laughs> Guess who is the third happiest group on the planet? Not single men. Married women. Get married, you become less happy on the average if you're a woman. Guess who are the most miserable people on the planet, on the average? Single men. So here's the proposal. There's a lot of single women who want to go from being happy to less happy. <laughs> Find one of them and say, here's the deal. No blinders on. I will marry you. You will feel great for three months. <laughs> we will have the wedding, and you will feel great for another three months. Then your joy will start declining. <laughs> My joy will increase. And I will live longer. But I promise you this. I'll drop dead four years before you There is not a man in the crowd who applauded. <laughs> I will drop dead four years before you, and you will be happier. <laughs> will you marry me? And the unbelievable thing is, the woman will probably say, yes. <laughs> Why? Because she's relationally driven. The genders need to be understood so that gender differences are not a curse, but a blessing. Pastor Howard.